Welcome to the B2B Marketing and Copywriting Podcast. I'm your host, Linda Malone, certified conversion copywriter, copy strategist, and founder of Copyworks. Join me each week as I speak with experts in the fields of marketing, copywriting, decision-making, psychology, and more, all with one goal, to help you attract your ideal customers and inspire them to take action. Today is Kendall Kern. Kendall and I have actually worked together, so I wanted to get that right up for my... Um, he is the CEO and founder of Forms on Fire. When I asked him to describe what he does, he said, you know how employees waste time filling out paper forms and taking them back into the office where someone else enters them into a computer? He says, I help companies eliminate that entire process. We call it Forms on Fire and it's the internet's answer to the Dunder Mifflin company. He says, I'm a five-time founder, failing miserably at my third startup, a hiker, a husband, a God-fearing believer, and a competitive sailor, which you know I have to ask him about. And you can follow him on sailingwithmybrother.com and his website, which he'll give at the end as well, is formsonfire.com. And so today I am asking Kendall, because I've worked with him before, that what makes his customer support so extremely efficient and well-loved by his clients as part of the research that I do with my clients, I talk to their customers past and present and ask them what makes them decide to go with my client and what were some of the differentiating factors. And in almost every conversation, someone brought up the customer support as being out of this world, which ended up being in his tagline on the website, otherworldly customer support. So we're going to dive into that. What makes otherworldly customer support? Why does he see it as so important? And what do B2B companies do that they could do better with their customer support? So let's jump right in. All right, Kendall, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Um, (laughs) Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Happy to be here, Linda. As I said in my intro, uh, in full transparency, you and I work together. I've worked for you. And so this topic is actually an offshoot of the research that I did for Forms on Fire. But before I get into all of that, I have to ask you about your competitive sailboat racing, because that's so awesome. And I did check out, what is it? Sailingwithmybrother.com. And I was looking. Yes. How did that come about? Oh my gosh, Linda, thanks for asking. I've been sailing competitively my whole life. And I think I started, my father bought a sailboat when I was maybe about 10 or 11 and he joined a sailing club and he had all of us get certified as sailors. Oh, cool. And then we started sailboat racing and, you know, that was really big in the club where we were and we sailed every Saturday and Sunday of every weekend. Wow. And I got pretty good at it. And some of the better sailors in the, in the, in that particular sail sailing club, invited me to be their crew. And one man in particular, a man named Bruce Lilliadal, he was a professor at Purdue University, extremely competitive, almost every year won club championship. And I was, you know, always getting trophies. And we he would take his boat around the Midwest and I would go with him for these, you know, Midwest district regattas and we would come back winners. And he was just amazing. And so when I got into college, I started sailing at Purdue competitively and did did quite well. I wasn't all American or anything, but I did quite well at Purdue sailing. And 
And then when I got my first job out of college, I moved to Chicago and I got on a boat up there owned by a very wealthy individual. And I ended up becoming the helmsman on that boat. It was a 41 uh, foot CNC. And we would sail in Chicago. We sailed the Chicago to Mac. And a couple of years later, I ended up on another boat as helmsman. And I ended up inviting my brother. My brother and I had sailed a lot together. Uh-huh. And so we sailed a bunch together in Chicago. And then 30 years ago, I moved to Seattle. I sailed in Seattle on a different boat, never sailed with my brother. He'd been sailing in the Midwest. He then moved to Houston. Well, 30 years later, wouldn't you know, he retires Uh and he ends up in Indiana and he buys a boat identical to the one that my father bought. My father bought one like this, brand new. Wow. You know, 1976. uh, Sale number 2884. It's a flying Scott. Anyway, my brother bought this boat. I went sailing with him last summer and he said, hey, what do you think about sailing a regatta with me? And I said, let's go do one and see if we can get along. And we went and sailed one and we did well Uh and we got along. We had a great time. And so now we're sailing the circuit. And so we started this blog because I have a 360 camera and we're doing all this video and we've actually done pretty well. And so we're already scheduling. Like, I think we've got, we've done three regattas. We're going to do three more this year. We've got at least three that we're going to be doing January, February. And then we know we're going to go to nationals in June. We know we're going to go to, anyway, we have all this planned out and it just, it just sort of rolled forward and we're just, we're having a ball. It's oh, a that's awesome. Yeah. I so if people want some- to follow us, it's, it's, yeah, it's sailingwithmybrother.com. <laughs> it looks like a lot of work. You know, I knew someone years ago who had a sailboat and he said, you want to go, you know, sailing with me? And I said, cool, but I don't know how to sail. So he was doing all the work. I didn't even see him because he was doing all the, you know, whatever he had to do. And I just remember being surprised at how much the boat would tip and how it would go so close to the water. I was freaking out, but that was the only time. And um, yeah, and I was just thinking, it's just so much work. I mean, don't you ever, do you ever just go out and just sail and relax? <laughs> or is it um, a competitive thing? It's, well, once you, Here's the thing. Once you actually start competing in sailing, it's it's honestly it's difficult to go out and just relax on a sailboat. Really, it just is. You always feel like you need to be racing someone else, and <laughs> yeah, I think it just gets into your blood. It's it's hard to get out of your blood. So, anyway, yeah, it's right. it's we're having a lot of fun, and it you know the videos make it look like there's a lot of work, but believe it or not, we're having a ball. So really, yeah, because it's yeah. and it's just funny because. You know, having a business, I mean, is it a break from that? Are there, because I, I talked to someone recently who plays chess and there's, I know there's like strategy to chess. Is it, is there any connection between the sailing and your work at all? Like, is it? There's so much strategy involved with it, racing strategy, like just even this doing the start, like there's so much strategy and just getting the start down and doing very, very well in the start. If you get your starts down, you know, you usually can be in at least the top half of the pack, if not higher, maybe the top 25%, maybe the top 10% if you get the starts right. But yeah, there's so much strategy. And I, I've got to say, since I've been doing it, it's it's been a great break on my mind. Usually I'm thinking about work all the time as an entrepreneur, it's kind of 24 by seven. Yeah. But when I go out there and we're competing, I don't think at all about what we're doing in the business. And it's it's a great break. Yeah, I, I would think you'd have to be 100% focused. You know, I can't imagine yeah. you lose your focus if For you're sure. in the water or something, <laughs> or yeah. you're not yeah. winning. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So jump into this. So 
as I, I said, you know, I did all this research for your company and what sets you apart. Yep. And one of the things that kept coming up consistently is your customers said that you had one person described it as added their support is customer support is out of this world. And it's such yeah. it's something that is sort of a given. You would think, well, of course, you have a company, you're gonna have great support, but that's just not the case. I mean, how did you how did forms on fire get to be known for that customer support? Well, to get, I mean, to be known for otherworldly customer support, so to speak, you've got to provide otherworldly customer support. You can't be known for something that you aren't really the best at. To me, having a SaaS business, having a software business, first of all, you've got to have a great product that has a market fit, right? Right. So excellent product market fit. But what keeps people being clients of ours is that customer support. Yeah, sure. We keep improving the product. You've got to have improvements. You have to listen to your to your clients. You have to understand what it is, the problem that they're trying to solve, new problems that they want to solve, new kind of integrations that they want to make, listening to those things and responding to them. But doing that through the client support area and then making sure that with every request that you get, I mean, I, I'm blown away. I see the statistics of our growth and then I see call times actually shortening, you know, first call time down to less than 20 minutes on average. I mean, I'm just kind of blown away when people, that's just literally response time on every single ticket that comes through. And that's, that's phenomenal. I mean, if you compare us, if you do a benchmark of us to, you know, industry standards, you can see that it's excellent. So I think first, you've got to be really good at it. And then secondly, people are going to take notice and they're going to write about it. So how did we get to be known for it? I think we kind of go above and beyond. I call it ridiculously helpful customer support. That's, you know, be ridiculously helpful, kind of it's for one of our four pillars of our mantra. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's just turned out to be great. And we, I love being known for it because I've always like, from the time I was a teenager, I worked retail and I mean, retail, you've got to be at the top of your game. If you're going to be good at retail, you have to be very responsive to people when they come in. I think that what you're seeing is you're seeing that carry through. That's kind of the start of it. You you do really well at customer support. And then there's a whole bunch of things in our playbook that talk about how we're going to stay top of our game in that. Yeah. Because the, the reason that it, it stood out for me is I deal a lot with SaaS companies just because I use a lot of SaaS products myself in my business. And just yesterday, mm-hmm. I had a question. I was using a new um, software. I had a question and there was nowhere that I could contact a live person. They said, go to our FAQs. So I go on that. Is your question answered here? No, it wasn't. And so what happened is I ended up signing up for the product anyway, because I had, I found that it was helpful. Um, And then as soon as I did that, then I was able to engage a live chat and they did help me. But even with that, they said, we'll respond within 24 hours. So they responded sooner than that, but it wasn't like immediate and you know, I keep running into this. So you're absolutely right with SaaS, especially. What do you think is the reason for that? Is it because they're so busy? Is it because what is the reason why customer support is kind of crappy? <laughs> a lot. Of I, I mean, look, like, like I think, like anything in business, I think that a, a business needs to 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 view the product or the service or the pricing through the eyes of the person who's actually buying it, and I don't. I don't know when I hear that you couldn't contact them. First of all, I think that particularly in SaaS, 
there's a lot of advice that's out there that says, oh, you shouldn't, like you shouldn't have telephone support. And the first thing that happens when you get funded, at least in my opinion, what I've seen from venture capitalists on a small SaaS company, if it's a product-led, product-driven SaaS company, is they say, oh yeah, you don't need telephone support. And I just find that to be a ridiculous statement. Yeah, We offer telephones. I think one of the things like when I look at it, I want to offer support through all the mediums, right? If you want to reach out to us via chat, you can do that via chat. If you want to call us, you can do that. If you want to email us, you can do that. Now we're not available by phone 24-7. And we're getting there because we're looking at how are we going to cover support over in Europe? How are we going to cover support over in Asia and Australia? Those kinds of things. In the next six months, we're probably going to be there with 24-hour support, which will be phenomenal because if somebody in the United States wants to call and they are going to answer in Europe, but they working late in the United States, that's great. I think that they that when when I hear it experiences like the one that you just had, you know, they're not really thinking about it in my from my perspective by looking at it at at the customers, how the customer's coming in. And I'll give you a similar example. Last week, I think it was on Friday. I got up and I had my cup of coffee. It's about six o'clock in the morning and I turn my computer on. My internet's down, right? I'm thinking, okay, well, why is my internet down? So I'm doing all the things to figure out why the internet's down. And I figure out, oh, my Comcast is down, but my neighbor's Comcast isn't. I send him a text message. I phone them up and I find out that the reason why is because my credit card was stolen about a month ago and I didn't change the credit card number. Well, nobody emailed us. Nobody called us. Nobody warned us that they were going to turn off for internet service. So I'm on the phone dialing and they're like, do you want to talk to someone in customer support? I'm like, absolutely. What do you want to talk to someone about? Billing. And they're like, oh, well, because you don't have a proper credit card in here, I can't send you someone to billing. And I mean, I literally couldn't through the phone tree get a human to take my credit card. I had to figure out a way to get online using a hotspot on my phone, put in a new credit card. And it was the worst. And I, you know, I sent back to him and I said, you guys, you got to allow your customers to hit the button that says, I want to talk to someone in billing. You got to make it easy to accept money from your customers. Why wouldn't they make that easy for me? I don't know. I don't think they really understand. And when a person like me submits, you know, the concern that you guys should fix this, I'm not sure they actually have someone looking at. Not sure, but it's frustrating. Yeah, it's really frustrating. I even had that with Zoom. Last week, I had a call that I was supposed to go on with a new client. And it was, it just wasn't working. And I could, oh, it said that my account wasn't good. Like I've used Zoom for years. And all of a sudden, I couldn't get, I couldn't log in. It says, well, we need to create a new password. And so I tried to do that. And they, they send you a code through your email. And the email wasn't getting through. And so I was texting this this prospect over and over because I kept keeping him. I, I don't know if I can get on this call. And he was saying, we can get on the phone if you want. It ended up on the very last minute. I had like six passwords come through on my email. I just somehow it got locked. Just, I don't know. It got stalled somewhere, but I couldn't call anyone. There was no one. And this is, you know. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's really horrible. frustrating. So that's the thing. So when you say like, one of the things I learned as a copywriter is you never put on the site customer satisfaction guarantee because satisfaction isn't it's just not a strong enough word and you, you really have to like you said really go over the top and it, i mean to to you like what do you think is over the top or otherworldly as one of your clients said what does that look like as far as like because you well, said 24 7 phone service that 
foreign phone support isn't practical. But what is it that you think? Yeah, it's yeah. look. I I think I think that first of all, if we look at all the different ways, all the different things that we put in our playbook, you know, there there are a number of areas that I think you have to mature in, and and one of those I already touched on, which is that you've got to have all the different channels available, chat, phone, email support. But the other thing then is you've got to make sure that you keep sufficient staff, right? You need to look at your levels and say, when do we have peaks? When do we have valleys? When do we have a, need to have a little bit more staff on there? When do we need to add a little bit more staff? If you have a client that has some very special needs, how can you create a very specific service level agreement with that client to maybe offer? We have clients in retail. We need to offer... Saturday and Sunday support if they call in and be able to answer those questions within an hour or two hours if they have a login or something like that. So keeping a sufficient staff. I think the other thing, if you look at our playbook, you, you have to regularly train your all of your support representatives. And, and one of the ways that we train them is how to really understand a person's question. Because oftentimes a person will be asking a question and they're not actually asking the question that you think they're asking. It's a bit of an art, particularly with a platform like ours, right? Because it's we're like a clean sheet of paper. People can do anything with it. So they're trying to describe what it is that they want to design on your platform. And they're in their mind have a certain business process that they're trying to design on their workflows and those kinds of things. Making sure you try to understand what those questions are before you go answering them is really important. Sometimes that requires asking the client. Uh, more details about what it is that they're saying, but making sure that you understand that clearly. So you give them the right answer at the right time for them to be able to solve their problem. So training is a really important thing for us. Um, the other thing is if you have good systems, you can store that customer data and all the issues about that particular client. Uh, and those can be reused for the, the existing client as well as for new clients. I think if you have a lot of uh, problems that are kind of recurring over and over, got to make it really easy for people to go to those FAQs and find the answers that they're looking for. Because sometimes they are doing it after hours. Sometimes they don't want to contact support. Maybe they're a brand new client or maybe they're on a free trial and they kind of don't want to call because they think they're going to be sold or something. So we try to make sure that that knowledge base has all those FAQs and they're easy to find. That's part of our playbook. Again, listening to customers, understanding what that is. Above above everything, you totally got to be polite. I mean, we try to, we really try to hit in our hiring process. We're really looking for people who are ladies and gentlemen that want to treat our clients like ladies and gentlemen. And I mean, that's just kind of right out of some of the playbooks from some of the top hotels or from Nordstrom is you want to make sure that you can do that. And then you've got to empower executives and the team to make decisions. Uh, When we get online with people, we want to make sure that we're using screen sharing tools so they can see what we're doing. If we're writing a playbook that shows how to do something, we'll do that using a screen uh, recording technology, building that knowledge base, all of those things. And then I think reporting and analytics and looking at those on a weekly basis. And we have you know a team stand up once a week where we're looking at all those KPIs and we're saying, how did we do? What was the response time on the first you know, response to this ticket. Well, how many calls called in? How many actually were answered first time around? How many did we need to call back? All of those things. And then setting new goals for people to achieve something even better. 
think all those are all to me, those are kind of simple things. I think very few companies e- even do those things. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I always tell the story Fine. about uh, Nordstrom when I, it was years ago. I mean, we're talking probably 15 years ago. I had purchased two pairs of pants and they needed to be hemmed. And because I'm so statuesque, <laughs> I'm like 5'3. Um, so I always have to get. You're pants. so thin that they don't make a size small enough for you <laughs> right. or something. Right? So I went to pick them up and they weren't ready. And they couldn't even find the pants that I had bought. And so the manager said, she pulled, she pulled it. They happened to have the same ones on the rack. She goes, I don't know what happened. I'm going to personally see to these. I'm going to make sure that you're not charged for them. And I'm going to hand deliver them to your house, which is what she did. So I don't remember how long it took. And I didn't have an event or anything. That's amazing. Yeah. And she came to my house and delivered them. And I've been a customer ever since. So that's the other thing is you create these long-term loyal customers. Like people say, oh, Nordstrom's expensive. I don't think so. First of all, you can get good deals. You know, yeah, you can get the designer stuff. But I will always go to them for clothes before any other store because, because of that one thing. And they've always been consistently helpful. And I think that kind of lost that, especially with AI. And I wanted to ask you about that because I was on a, this was a, um, I was trying to make a, an appointment with a, a doctor and it wasn't clearly an AI, it was a chat bot. And they said, well, we'll hand, the question I had wasn't one of the frequently asked questions. And so they said, we'll get you a live person. Well, that person quote that came on, I could tell was another chat bot. It had to be either that or they had no idea what they were doing. I mean, do you think that's ruining some of the customer support that people just rely on it too much, these SaaS companies? I look, I think AI is really going to pay a, play a role in customer support, particularly for software companies, for media companies, uh, for a lot of different things that are happening. How successful is it going to be? I think that that's really going to be company dependent. Are they going to be following and watching how things are actually being answered and measuring the customer satisfaction from the way that they're answering questions, right? If they just throw it out there and they're not measuring it, I think you could end up in a big disaster where, okay, yeah, we're going to have AI do this and let's get rid of half our staff. And then they do that. And then their customer satisfaction falls off a cliff. People get rid of their service and then they're scrambling to bring other people back in. And I, I just think there needs to be a tremendous amount of testing to make sure whatever it is with all new technologies, AI being sure, having a tremendous amount of promise versus perhaps some other things that we used to be doing. But I still think it all totally needs to be tested with the clients. And to the extent that it can work, it's great. I've got a friend of mine who is has been uh, putting together some technology that's you know specifically for that area for different media companies and being able to reduce their overall costs that they have from these you know Disney Plus services and those kinds of things, people calling in or chatting with it and making sure that you can use AI to tap into what the answers are. But those kinds of things have actually always kind of been around because they've been programmatically designed. AI makes the learning on that. Hey, was this helpful? Was this article helpful? Feeding that back in through machine learning to make it you know, more useful, I think is good, but you still have to measure and you still have to make, make it work. So, I mean, just like copywriting, right? I mean, you're in a business where people now, they just say, hey, would you write me this? And copywriting can be one of those things where it can, can be disintermediated. And maybe you can get there a little faster to, to get that initial version out there. But 
you still have to put that human touch on it. Because I mean, I can see, I see letters. I have, I have hired a new executive assistant and I saw a few emails go out from her and I'm like, Hey, are you using chat GPT on those? Cause those look a little schmoozy, you know, from my perspective. I know you're a nice person, but that was a little schmoozy. And she's like, Oh yeah, maybe I can tone those down a little bit. So yeah, I've been, I've been noticing even on LinkedIn, people are leaving comments that are clearly AI generated. So what I did is I found an AI, Interesting. Uh, uh, there's a, a platform, a software that you can run copy or, or text, cut and paste it, and it'll tell you if it's AI generated or the chance, the percentage or chances that it is AI generated. Interesting. And I did that with one because I knew it just was too, it was using a lot of marketing speak. You know, and I just wrote about this on LinkedIn because that's what, that's what chat GPT does is they use a lot of, they're pulling from the internet. So they're pulling phrases that are used over and over again. I have, I'm always feeling better about myself when I use it because I'll use it for ideas. And it's like, this is just lame. And I, I use good prompts and I'm collecting, you know, prompts from other copywriters. What are you using? Uh, what I have found is that it's good for extracting ideas. Like say from this conversation, I might throw the whole thing in and say, pull out what are the most important facts that it's good at, but I'm going to have to go back in and, you know, really look at what, cause it still doesn't give me enough to, to really use for like a post or something. You well, know? it gets here to stay and it's going to get better. And I think if we don't figure out a way to use it, we're going to be left behind. Right. So like AI is not going to replace your job, but somebody plus AI is probably going to replace your job. Right. So it's somebody who's going to leverage how to use it in their job to be better, faster, cheaper than the person who's currently doing the job. And I, I, I think personally, that's what it's about. It's like, you've got a nice buddy system there. Use some AI, get you there a little bit faster, get you there faster than your competitors, a little bit cheaper, um, a little bit potentially better, give you some ideas that maybe you didn't have. And that's kind of in all areas. And we, we need to be paying attention for sure. Yeah. It doesn't have the ability to be empathic because it's a machine, right? And one of the things I did, I heard on the news, there was an eating disorder hotline that had replaced all its human operators with AI. And people, they had major problems. They had to hire everybody back because people were given the wrong advice. I mean, you call up, you have a, a psychological issue, you have a problem. You don't want to talk to a robot. You know, I mean, there's certain things. It's just, you need that human touch. You need somebody who can empathize, who can have that, you know, that emotional intelligence that can, like you said earlier about questions, you know, when people ask a question, you have to have that ability to say, is that really what they're asking or kind of think about where, what is it? Because you're dealing with tech and maybe they don't even know what they don't know. Yeah. So you have to- You mean, you mean you do, we don't want the robots when you call in to say, hey, fatty, listen, get off <laughs> your lazy duff. And stop eating all those chocolate bars. You just don't need those. And then the person is crying on the other end of the line and then they hang up on them. Right. You don't want AI doing that? Come on. I, th I think that's what was happening. It was something, you know what? It wasn't far from that because they said what happens. They were given the oh. wrong, somebody called it was an eating disorder. So maybe they were starving themselves and they were saying, just stop eating or eat less or something like that. It was, it was making it worse. Oh my gosh. No, I, I barely. Oh, there's, there's gonna, there's gonna be some funny routines to watch on YouTube for sure as this AI starts to mature, or companies think it's maturing and it goes wrong. Oh, it's gonna be really perfect. funny. Yeah, I barely trust my my robot vacuum in this house. You know, 
I swear it's like, is this thing after me? I don't know. But well, this has been a lot of fun. I mean, do you have any tips for B2B companies that want to improve their customer support? First of all, you have to you have to implement the golden rule. You have to be treat others as you want to be treated. Like think about your best customer service experiences and say to yourself, how can I offer that to my clients so that they'll say incredible things about us? And I think if you start there and you start with the the client's attitude in mind and you you can do that. But look, it's it's never easy. Technical support is never easy and it's never perfect. New issues are going to keep coming up every time when there's something new introduced or every time some new client is going to do something new and there's that you've never thought of in the in the product and you know there's always going to be troubleshooting for these new you know solutions but if you create these ground rules and you, you set the ground rules and have your team make sure you start with a really great team and they follow it like some of the best practices that I talked about this this playbook write a playbook make sure that everybody understands what the playbook is you know if if you do that and you do absolutely your best you're probably going to get noticed you you just you can't give up on it though if you're if you're falling down on it you just need to get better and better and uh, pretty soon you'll be surprised i'm i'm amazed i mean our team is phenomenal they're co- they're coming up with new ways uh, how to be at least get that first response out there faster and uh, and how to divide up the work depending on the skill set and another thing that i would just say is retention is critical you've got to be able to retain people particularly if your product is a little more you know, complicated to learn. If it has a steep learning curve, um, you're going to need to keep your people. So you have to figure out, you know, what is your retention uh, policy? What are your retention goals? How are you going to keep people on board? And I think, you know, we've done a very good job of that. And I'm so grateful of the for the work that that these people do and how they just make an incredible name for self. The other thing is, we're not afraid to ask clients when they say great things. Oh, you guys really helped me today. You really solved that. Ask that individual to write another, write a review about you in one of the software review sites. I think we're not afraid to do that. We actually incentivize our team to do that and get those really top quality reviews. So that very first question that you asked in this in this interview is, how do you get known for that? We're just not shy about asking, particularly those people that are already saying it to us. Let's have them say that to the world. It's been a great experience. Yeah, and you have to also capture people when they're in that mode of saying how great you are. Because if you ask them a month later, they're going to forget. <laughs> so, or they're Possibly. just not going to be yeah. as enthusiastic. But. Yeah, could be. Yeah, that's really good. All right. Well, where can people find you and Forms on Fire if they want more information? So you can find me on LinkedIn. I blog about entrepreneurship and food safety and inspections and audits and doing all things, you know, using a no-code platform like Forms on Fire. Uh, so you can find us, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find out about the company at formsonfire.com. Uh, you can email me on Kendall at formsonfire.com. And if you want to track our sailing, sail with my brother, Kevin, you can go to sailingwithmybrother.com. We've got another regatta coming up in September and you can root us on for that. So Awesome. Yeah. I'll put all that in the show notes so people can have those links. Well, thank appreciate you so it. much, Kendall. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Okay. Thanks for inviting me, Linda. Have a great day. And that is a wrap of today's episode. I hope you found some actionable advice that you can use to help you improve your copy conversions. 
And for even more copywriting exclusive tips, be sure to click the link in the show notes to sign up for my weekly newsletter so you don't miss a beat. And as always, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a review. It really helps me out. Talk again soon.